coming up on Philosophy Talk. As life returns to some kind of normal, what have thoughtful people been reading this summer? There's a kind of summer camp feeling that I wanted to capture in that story. Science fiction writer Cory Doctorow on dispatches from the post-pandemic future. It is an optimistic story because we confront all of those things head on. Science fiction is inherently philosophical. Philosopher Helen de Cruz on exploring the boundaries of the possible. Science fiction stories are like long thought experiments that look as what's possible and not just what is actual. I'm feeling that uh, that literature may be more helpful at measuring the massive inertia of the ongoing present. Stanford English professor Michaela Bronstein on post-lockdown fiction. What have you read this summer that challenged your assumptions and made you think about things in new ways? It's our annual summer reading list. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from our respective living rooms via the studios of KLW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's our annual summer reading list. And what a difference a year makes. No kidding. We'll check in with our Stanford colleague, Michaela Bronstein, who talked to us last year about how fiction and narrative could help us through the pandemic. And as we gingerly move into a life beyond COVID, we'll talk to science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, who has a story in a new collection called Makeshift, Dispatches from the Post-Pandemic Future. We'll also ask St. Louis University philosopher Helen de Cruz about the collection that she edited this year, Philosophy and Science Fiction Stories, Exploring the Boundaries of the Possible. But to get us started, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out how poets read, created, and connected over the past year. She files this report. Sarah Kabrinsky is the former poet laureate of Emeryville, California. During the pandemic, she turned to folktales. At the very beginning of the pandemic, maybe the first few months, um, every day we would light a campfire and just read old school folk tales around the campfire, just trying to keep our kid engaged. You know, here he was stuck with his boring parents, you know, all day. And so trying to keep him off a screen, trying to keep him, you know, his wild mind alive. Kabrinsky also followed a project from the San Francisco Public Library, where one poem was showcased every day. The program featured one of her own poems titled A Poem for John Who Writes in Elevens. It's about John Oliver Simon, a beloved Bay Area poet and teacher. There are 11 syllables in this line. 11, 11, my dear, make a wish. This is also a Dear John letter, John, but not that kind of a Dear John letter, John. I just wanted to feel your form, try you on, count and count again the stars in Joseph's dream. Did you see any stars when you were under? Are you any lighter now that growth is gone? Once I heard of a man who kept his tumor on his mantle in a jar next to his wife. He wished on it, like on a star, called it John. My poem is titled, The Lesson. It's written on June 1st, 2020. Craig Santos Paris is a poet and professor at the University of Hawaii. Feeling short on time, he often wrote sonnets. He tried to write a poem a day. What if the pandemic is trying to teach us 
how to stop discriminating. My wife and daughter both suffer from asthma, so I was really worried about their health. I was watching the news, national news, and seeing protests around the U.S., um, seeing a lot of cops arresting, you know, mostly peaceful protesters, um, witnessing the violence happening, especially against African Americans. And so to me, you know, I was thinking a lot about how, you know, scientists were saying that the virus does not discriminate, where it attacks everyone equally. What Contagion Got Wrong About a Pandemic in America, written after the third time of watching it since the start of 2020. Sakina Hoffler is a poet, playwright, and fiction writer. In 2020, she learned she was pregnant. Her sister was working in a COVID-19 unit. Her parents caught the disease. She found herself in a fog. More conspiracy theories, as in democratic hoax, as in Soros, as in man-made, as in labs, as in 5G, as in towers. The conspiracy theorists using conspiracy theories from conspiracy theorists to corroborate conspiracy theories for the conspiracy theorists. The right way to write, I am so sorry for your loss. I am so sorry for your loss. I am so sorry for your loss. For me, at least like fiction has always been a way of telling me history. And so it is our like our job in a way to kind of record what's going on. I couldn't write for myself, but I kept saying, okay, well, if, if my son is born, I'm no longer here. He'll have something of mine, like he can hear my words and he can hear what I observed while he was in my stomach and he can, he can learn what the world was like before and after COVID. When I say poetry is magic, reading is, is magic and it's, you know, he carries us to places sometimes we need to be when our own reality is too much for us to cope with. The correct number of times to start a poem and never finish. The right way to write, I am so sorry for your loss. The credits, as in, expect an ending. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks, Holly, for that rhapsodic report on rhythm and rhyme. I'm Ray Briggs. With me is my Stanford colleague, Josh Landy. And today, we're compiling our annual summer reading list. A little over a year ago, as the pandemic took hold, we spoke to Michaela Bronstein, our colleague in the Stanford English Department, about the value of fiction, stories, and storytelling to help us cope with anxious times. A year later, we thought we'd check in with her to find out what she is reading now that things are opening up. Michaela, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Thanks for having me. It's nice to hear you all again. So, Michaela, last summer, uh, you very helpfully explained to us how we can put reading to the service of getting through the pandemic. So I, I've got to ask, how did that work out for you? Well, if I, if I remember correctly, I think I talked a lot last year about literature that engaged with the possibility of massive historical change right. uh, and radical departures from the past as something we might find useful for getting through the pandemic. And I have to say at the moment, I'm feeling that literature may be more helpful to at kind of measuring the massive inertia of the ongoing present, both within the pandemic and uh, right now as we all return to sociability. Uh, I will soon be teaching Mrs. Dalloway 
and the kind of atmosphere of the opening up of a party and the newness of it um, is something that feels very relevant to me right now in a different way than I was talking about last year. And so what have you been reading recently, Michaela? Uh, I just finished uh, the Richard Wright novel, The Man Who Lived Underground, which was published uh, about a month ago, but written about 80 years ago at this point. Uh, it's a novel that was rejected by publishers during Wright's lifetime, probably in part because it very explicitly treats uh, police brutality um, and torture to elicit a false confession. And Wright published a novella version of it uh, during during his own lifetime, but only just this year do we have access to the to something like the full novel he intended. So, Michaela, can you tell us a little bit more about this novel? Yeah. So, the man who lived underground is about a black man named Fred Daniels who is picked up by the police. Uh, they they think he's committed a heinous murder. Uh, he has not. He is tortured until he gives a false confession. He eventually escapes the police and winds up in the sewers where he explores a variety of places from the sewers that he's able to get access to, including a morgue, various businesses, um, a church, and a film theater. Um, and eventually, he, he, while he's down in the sewers, he comes to a, a different way of viewing the world. That also sounds really similar to a lot of the things that happen in Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think people have made some connections between the, between the texts before, um, but the novel version, the new one, really makes that much more explicit. Uh, Fred Daniels sort of describes himself as invisible um, in sort of extended ways. Um, and also The Man Who Lived Underground and Invisible Man both owe something to uh, Dostoevsky's notes from underground. Uh, and Ellison and Wright were friends. Uh, so the connection is very solid. But it's interesting because it's almost as though this novel is sort of, I mean, uh, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man came later. But yes, it's all, if you read them out of order, you almost think this one is a critique of Invisible Man because uh, Fred Daniels thought foolishly he could walk right on past the man as though he were a kind of ghost. And then the sheer reality of it came to him. He was real. And so was this man. And so it's a very in that sense, a very different vision. Of yeah, race well, relations in America. But you know what's interesting is that both the what what struck me as the kind of one of the strongest points of comparison is that both in Invisible, the protagonist of Ellison's novel, and Fred Daniels keep at the beginning keep on expecting the world to work out. So Fred Daniels thinks, oh, he'll just provide an explanation to the police and they'll let him go because he's innocent. Mm. Um, and Daniels is much quicker than Invisible to learn otherwise. It takes invisible, you know, hundreds of pages to figure out that actually, no, the world will not be just to him. Uh, Fred Daniels, uh, as he, you know, in part because of the extreme physical brutality he suffers, uh, once he enters the sewers, starts uh, thinking in a, in, a, in a dramatically different way. That brings me to another motif in this novel, which is the, the motif of religion. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned quite rightly that, the, you know, this is a character, Fred Daniels and, and Richard Wright's The Man Who Lived Underground, who who expects things to go the way of justice and reasonableness. And of course, they don't because the the highly racist society he's living in is massively unjust. 
And then, of course, he encounters a group of very devout religious believers and has a kind of conversion experience. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think um, just to to set the scene a little bit, uh, Wright actually intended the novel to be published with an essay, um, Memories of My Grandmother, which describes this whole novel as an attempt to capture her Seventh-day Adventist uh, view of the world, um, in which the world is simply less real than God's truth, um, which is not quite in the world. Um, And what Wright is trying to do in this novel, at least is the way he tells it, is to capture that viewpoint in the in the person of what happens to Daniel's. Um, the world becomes unreal to him once he enters the sewers, but without doing it precisely through the theology of, of Adventism. Uh, and so when he encounters the people who are praying and singing in the church, he sort of looks at them through the lens of his own strange relation to the world produced by the false accusation and uh and and torture which is um he recognizes in them this sense of a kind of inchoate guilt that in his view everybody is feeling everybody is guilty of something and also everybody is is innocent at the same time i i was curious about like whether it was possible to evaluate this sense of detachment that Daniels is feeling. Like, he, he leaves his family behind, including his pregnant wife. And this seems maybe kind of inevitable given his circumstances, but also kind of, I, I don't know that I, I love it morally. <laughs> yeah, not, not just pregnant. I believe she, she's actually giving birth at, uh, near the beginning of the novel. Yeah, um, and, and doesn't Wright say in his discussion of the story, uh, take it as an indictment of religion, if you will. I mean, yeah. he, he seems to connect that uh, sudden callousness on on Fred Daniels's part, on the, the part of the main character, uh, well, with this with his turn to religion. Yeah. So, and all it's also an indictment, and it's in part to the extent that it's an indictment of religion. It's also that that is part of the indictment of the American criminal justice system, which, by dint of accusing people of having committed crimes, renders them in some way guilty. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly what's happening to Daniels: is that he, first of all, he he kind of feels this sort of sense of guilt that he can't erase, even though he knows he's actually innocent, and he starts committing crimes, um, some of which have terrible consequences. Uh, you know, he he steals things from these various uh, businesses that he's able to access, and then he witnesses other people being accused of the crimes that he has, in fact, committed, um, one of whom, uh, upon being accused, kills himself. Uh, so I don't think Wright is praising this detachment, um, in part because what he's saying is that this is one of the terrible consequences of the life that Black Americans have to live every day. So Michaela, The Man Who Lived Underground is just available now for people to read. Uh, but is there a reason why it's especially relevant reading for this summer? Well, I think the 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 line in every headline about the, the novel has been accurate, that it's a novel about police brutality. And it suddenly seems, well, not that suddenly, but but I think it arrives at a moment where people are really looking at the long history of um, law enforcement's abuse of, of Black Americans. And this novel, which starts with that up front, and then uses that as a jumping off point for a much broader consideration of Black religion and many other kind of textures of experience uh, seems to me very timely. 
Well, uh, Michaela, this has been a wonderful conversation about a fantastic book. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.